0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is another bonus episode of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know, la- uh, well, in in our weird pocket of the space time continuum, we just finished recording an episode with Peter Botke on his on Friedrich Hayek, all things Hayek and libertarian. It went long. It was super nerdy. I loved it. But I figured that since this is the first podcast upon my return from uh, our my adventures out west and Jack's uh, adventures out west that maybe— Out midwest. Midwest, that's right. That maybe we should, instead of doing a long post-game conversation like we normally would, we should instead do a short additional podcast conversation about whatever the hell we want— and, and I'll leave it to Jack to figure out the timing of when these things are released. Um, but just for continuity, oh, this and, and also uh, we have two advertisers this week, and we figured each should have their own uh, episode. So uh, this episode of The Remnant is brought to you by Donors Trust, and we'll talk about more about that in a little bit. They're a longtime um, supporter of this podcast, and we're glad to have um, their support. Um, but for continuity purposes, maybe we should pick up where we left off. Um, um, I had made the point that uh, that you can tell how much someone how much uh, social capital someone has by all that by what it would take for them to become homeless.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, in the sense that lots of things would ha- I would have to have and not just social capital, but financial capital, right I mean capital. I would have to have my bank accounts wiped out. I'd have to have my wife leave me. I'd have to have her, her family disown me. I'd have to have my family disown me. I'd have to have my relatives not want any – or my friends not to want to have anything to do with me. Basically, it would have to be like what uh, the Dukes did to to Dan Aykroyd in uh, um, Trading Places mm-hmm. um, for me to become homeless overnight. And, um uh, and then you made the point that actually, if there's one person in the world who could help make me homeless overnight, it would be you.
1: Yeah. Um, do you think about this often? <laughs> uh, occasionally, when uh, I'm just realizing how much how much of your life is under my control, uh, or my apparent control, perhaps yeah. influence. Influence. Yeah. yeah. And I, I I wield some degree of power over over your fortunes at the moment. That's true, but now that I have you on tape saying this. <laughs> oh, I was never going to do anything. Um, yeah, you have my... What's the uh, mens rea? That's right. You got it. You got the mens rea. But, but I, I could easily remove <laughs> what I true. just said. <laughs> it seems we are evenly matched. <laughs> well played. Um, this is, that reminds me of the um, the scene in the, in the second Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie, which is okay. But the scene... At the end where, like, you expect uh, Sherlock and Moriarty to fight, but they, like, instead just imagine to each other how the fight would play out. Yeah, 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 yeah. They just sort of go back and forth, and then Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes just does something that neither of them predicted they would do.
0: It's funny. That's actually one of my – I agree. It's a fairly okay movie, but that's, like, my favorite part of it.
1: Yeah, it's it's great. Like, very, very subverting the action movie uh, trope of, like, third act, climax, fight. Right, right. Um, anyway, um, so uh,
0: we're, I, for all I know, um, you know, at this point, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, um, it's like the end of what the second season of, of Game of Thrones and we will emerge from the studio and find out that Winterfell has been burned to the ground and um, uh, all of society is is torn apart because it sounds like it was shaping up to be another clown show. Um I think the single dumbest moment of twenty eighteen might and that's saying something. Yeah. Wow. Might be the left's freak out over this Zina Bash's alleged white supremacy hand gestures. It's got to be on a,
1: a, a list of finalists, right? What, what listeners don't, can't see is that Jonah and I are both doing that hand gesture to each other right now. Pretty
0: much. Um,
1: <laughs> did you ever play that
0: game? This, I think we called it the circle game where you made that gesture, the sort of uh, the buckwheat okay sign. And then if you could get your finger successfully in and out of the,
1: the, the loop, you got to punch someone. <laughs> and, um, is this like a New York in the 70s thing? Kind of like sounds 80s. like it. Well, and, okay. um, but, but Giuliani is still
0: dystopian. If you caught someone's finger, um, you got to punch them, and then it became all you had to do was show your fingers up, making the circle. And if I caught you making eye contact, looking through it, I got to punch you. Wow! And um, and I actually did. You grow up on the set of The Warriors by <laughs> chance? But there was actually a a a a brief time where some kids wanted to play that you got to punch the dude in the groin, and it was like a neutron bomb had gone off because there's all these shoes like, rolling around in the playground. I um, wonder no sperm counts are dropping these days. Um, that was a seminal point.
1: Anyway, uh, and
0: I, the only reason I'm bringing it up, and for all I know by the time this airs, this will already all be forgotten, but it's, a, it's, it's this thing that I'm kind of obsessed with lately is um, the way people want to have the enemies of their choosing rather than their enemies of reality, right? So these people on the left, you know, there was this guy, Seth Abramson, was that his name? Uh, Yeah, I think so. The guy who speaks fluent 4chan. Uh (laughs) Um, You know, they desperately... There's this subset of the resistance crowd that desperately wants to see themselves as, like, the swing kids from the early 1930s in Nazi Germany. And they are fighting... Nazis and white supremacists everywhere. And it seems to me that it's a kind of – it's a it's a version of virtue signaling, right, where you want to believe that your enemies are so profound that it makes you all the more righteous and virtuous, right? I mean there's that line from the Nazi philosopher Carl Schmitt, uh, tell me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are. Mm-hmm. And these people want to believe that they are – arrayed against the most cartoonishly villainous people. And the same thing happens on the right these days where you have these people who probably couldn't talk for more than 30 seconds about what cultural Marxism is, but who are utterly convinced that they are in a pitched battle for the future of, you know, civilization against cultural Marxists and um, or just flat out Marxists, you know, every now and then I get these chastising tweets from people saying why don't you understand they want to put all of us in camps right and uh this this weird obsession with making our enemies not just wrong or our opponents whatever not just wrong but they have to be existentially evil to justify everything that we're you know, that our tribe or our side is doing and the idea that this woman who is of Mexican descent her dad is the ch- her grandparents are holocaust survivors that you know the fact that her fingers touched in a certain way on her arm for you know and people counted the minutes that 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 this wasn't a clandestine effort to activate the white supremacists among us <laughs> is is so alien to these. they cannot let go of the idea because they want to define themselves in opposition to that. It can't be that Trump is You know, uh, incompetent or problematic or whatever the left wants to see in him. It has to be that he is, you know, the leader of a cabal. Remember when they remade um, Some of All Fears? Right. I used to talk about this in my speeches about Wait, liberal fascism. Wait, was that
1: ever... What was the... Some of All Fears is a Clancy book, right?
0: Yeah. They, ben Affleck was the...
1: But that wasn't a remake. That was just the first adaptation. Oh, when they
0: made it. That's right. I'm sorry. But
1: it was Ben Affleck playing Jack Ryan. Right, right. And... um. A major step down from both Alec Baldwin and Harrison Ford. I, I It pains me to say this, but that's correct.
0: Uh, not because I'm a fan of Ben Affleck, but I didn't think
1: Alec Baldwin was well cast for that role.
0: Um, But so... In the book – and I used to talk about this all the time in my book talks about liberal fascism. In the book, in Some of All Fears, the the people who want to blow up Americans with a nuclear bomb were jihadist terrorists, Mm -hmm. right? And then when that book hits Hollywood, they're like – No one will believe that. (laughs) Um, And so they change it from jihadis wanting a nuclear warhead to blow up, was it Baltimore or something? Um, And instead, it was a secret cabal of Dick Cheney-like CEOs who all had swastikas behind their their Patek Philippe watches um, who wanted to install a new Fourth Reich. Right. And that was a more plausible (laughs) argument for what, you know, the real existential threat in America is. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote liberal fascism was that there is this ingrained thing in liberal culture that always says the the enemy has to be the existential enemy of all good things has to come from the right. And it always has to take the form of Nazis. And we're seeing some of that here. One of the things that infuriates me is how the alt right dipwads. Make it so much more difficult to push back against that, yeah, because some of them do want to be Nazis, right? and there's this guy Scott Scott Greer, is that his name
1: uh, yeah, I think i'm I'm sure I'm one hundred percent sure about Greer, I'm less sure about Scott,
0: yeah, um I'm not exactly fluent in his oeuvre. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, the Atlantic had a piece this morning about how he's severed all ties with the Daily Caller and good for the Daily Caller. Because um, it turned out under a pseudonym, he was writing for uh, that Spencer guy's racist white supremacist journal, and the you know and, and his his statement I thought was hilarious, where he says you know look in my twenties, right? Uh, this was like in 2012 or something, or <laughs> six years
1: ago. Um, I think he's still in his twenties. Yeah, he so might it's like, be like, like me apologizing to you for something I did when I first started working. For you, or no? Me saying like, "Oh, I was much different then." Now, it's way back in 2015. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, and his his explanation was that uh, I was so upset with the the moderateness of Mitt Romney and Jeb Bush that I had no choice but to embrace more radical ideas like anti Semitism and racism. <laughs> and while I um, have changed my views because the political situation has changed. I will not apologize for honestly stating my beliefs, yada 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 yada, and
1: it's just, it's it's just the war and that that nice guy Mitt Romney, <laughs> yeah, um, and it,
0: there's this you know it's sort of like what we were talking about briefly with Peter Betke about this is there's this idea that somehow going to this racist, anti-Semitic stuff is cool because it's radical and it's intense and and all of this kind of thing, despite the fact that it's evil and incredibly stupid. But anyway my only problem my problem is with all of these dipwads who make it so much more difficult to defend a traditional conservative hayekian you know in defense of the liberal order and defense of the constitutional principles that this country was founded on because they now i think in large part as a rebellion against the left are embracing these these this jackassery um to get a rise out of people and then they start believing in it um i mean i think spencer is you know legitimately a kooky racist, but the a lot of these young people who got seduced by the sort of the, the, the alt-right stuff, they just want to be edgy. Um, and they're being incredibly stupid by embracing this, this stuff as a way to sort of get a rise out of people. Anyway, I didn't mean to get on all that. Um,
1: and speaking in grand civilizational terms, there is nothing edgy about embracing tribalism. That's right. And it's, it's been with us since the very beginning.
0: Yeah. And, and the idea that, oh, I'm going to dislike people who aren't exactly like me um, is not cutting edge you know, no. thinking. Um, yeah. There was this book written about that. You may have heard of it. I, I may, but I'm, I'm trying to wean myself off of relentlessly plugging um, Suicide, Suicide of, of the West, West, available now on Amazon. Um, and, uh, um, But speaking of books, uh, including books that are doing better than mine, uh, the uh, Woodward book is out, um, or pending, is almost out.
1: Um, Have you read any of the write-ups of it? I did. And this is – I read the Washington – or no, I read the transcript of – The conversation. Yeah, and what I thought was hilarious about that conversation is that this must speak to how well – or how good of a writer your previous – or, guess, two podcasts ago, Rob Long, is, but – he does those National Review um, fake conversations yeah. between Trump and, I don't know, Kellyanne and, or Conway or Trump and John Kelly. And it was like I could not – if you would put that in National yeah, yeah, Review, it would have, I would have just assumed that Rob Long had written it. Because there's even a point where in Rob Long's version of this, all, he often has the stage direction, Kellyanne enters. Yeah, yeah. And even in that conversation, there's a point where – like Trump Trump says, oh, look, there's Kellyanne. Come over here. <laughs> so he – he kudos to Rob Long for nailing exactly how, how Trump is in the, apparently in these conversations. Yeah, so the problem is – did you see this piece in Vulture about post-comedy? <laughs> I, I saw the headline. Yeah, where apparently now
0: the thing is to, is to use all of the tropes of comedy, like doing stand-up and making observations, but the goal isn't to be funny. <laughs> it's to – you know – um, I want to hear what Rob Long has to say about that. Well, that's the thing: is that in a, in a weird way, Rob stuff is funny. The transcript of Trump's actual conversation is sort of post funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Um, and uh, did you watch any of the, the 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 hearings yesterday, or were you so turned off by the racist hand gestures that you just couldn't watch?
1: Uh the only thing that I bothered watching was Ben or Senator Ben Sasse's R. Corn. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, statement that was really like a almost a Howard Beale esque exasperated rant, but that was really needed in the moment. Just um, pouring metaphorical uh, what was it? What was it that was poured on people at the gates of medieval castles? Oh, molten lead, wasn't it? Or yeah, tar, tar, whatever. One, yeah. Pouring metaphorical equivalent of that on basically the entire way of politics works now. That was something.
0: Yeah, no, that thing was great, and um, um, and. Uh, maybe we can put links to it. Uh, that a lot of that was covered in previous conversations we've had with Senator Sass on this podcast. Our corn, our corn. Um, for people who audio wise can't make out what we're doing, we're saying "r, comma corn," like the Republican from Corn. Um, <laughs> and uh, so much of it was like straight out of this thing I've been harping on forever about the Parliament of Pundits problem, mm-hmm. about how about the administrative state. And when he went, when he did his riff, which I only serendipitously got to hear in the car.
1: Because you, you kidnapped him and made him repeat it? No, no, no. It was just like,
0: (laughs) I was running around. Yesterday was my daughter's last day um, before school started. And I got dragged, my wife had to go to work and I got dragooned into uh, all sorts of back to school shopping and whatnot. And, um, uh, and so I'd watched the first hour of the clown show of the hearings and then I had to go, and but it just happened to be when I was in the car at one point. He started, and I stayed in the car. And I actually tweeted at the time, you know, listening to him do this this spiel. I started shouting, you know, Ben Sass, you magnificent bastard, you read my book. Because <laughs> <laughs> so much of it was so, you know, in sync with the my stuff about the administrative state and the, the problem that we have with congressmen wanting to be pundits and lobbyists, um, rather than actual legislators. Um, so I thought it was great. Um, I thought the response to it was great. You know, I, I worry about Sass's political future sometimes, given the climate that we're in. But I think between him and Nikki Haley, if we could somehow get back to Earth One um, or touch the orb again or <laughs> smash the orb or whatever, uh, that's the future of the Republican Party that that um, I would like to see. And full disclosure, my wife works for Nikki Haley. So there's that. Um, and Ben Sass is a friend of this this podcast.
1: Yeah, he, um, he's been in this very room before. Many times. Well, not many times, a couple times. Three times. Yeah, and we
0: did one by phone, I think.
1: So um, then only two times. Well, unless you mean that his, his voice has been in this room three times. Wow. Oh, has he only been on three episodes? Of... I think so. Okay. Well, that's still a record, right? Yeah, I don't think anyone has been... Well, maybe Tim Carney has been on... Maybe, maybe. Um,
0: anyway, so we loved that, or I loved that, the Ben Sass stuff, and, uh, um, (laughs) (laughs) Jack, did you just touch the orb? What's going on?
1: Uh, I don't know, but I, 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 are we in the, are we in the future or is that? Or our future selves? Are we, have we been replaced by our future selves?
0: We are, I see all of this strange technology that is so far beyond.
1: <laughs> Everything is Chrome.
0: <laughs> all right. So uh, listeners who are confused, I don't blame you. Um, we are actually recording this segment of the Remnant podcast a day later? Two days later? What, when did Just
1: we... a day. A day I mean, later. I, I understand why you're confused. Time traveling does that to it's one's natural sense yeah. of, of time. And I... Um,
0: What is it that they give you in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when you – clean towels? What is
1: it? Well, the towel is the famous thing. Yeah. But I don't think the towel – there's not like a chronometric – Am I supposed to drink like salt water or something? Oh, God. There's something like that. I wish – it's been too long since I've read those books. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is something. So anyway – I can can say there's an episode of The Outer Limits that Harlan Ellison sued James Cameron over in which people – trying to kill someone – people from the future trying to kill someone from the past are rooted in the past by these medallions that that person then learns about, rips them off, and they get, like, sent back to the future. So that's roughly what you were going for, right?
0: No, I was just saying how to deal with the time travel uh, dysphoria that one experiences. And I could swear there was something in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about traveling great distances then afterwards you, like, need – there's something in some sci-fi that we both know – where to like replace your electrolytes, you need to do something to fix it, but it doesn't matter. Um,
1: some listener will think of it.
0: Yeah, this is a crazy tangent. Anyway, what we're doing here is I happened to be in the office today. We weren't going to release this podcast until Friday, and then the anonymous New York Times uh, op ed came out, and we felt that it was if it was enough to turn the Bob Woodward book into a one day story, <laughs> <laughs> um, that it was going to render even our rank punditry. Um, somewhat stale. And so we figured we'd do a little bit on that. I also wanted to get to a couple other things that we forgot to mention in the uh, podcast that we were recording. And so we'll have this conversation, and then you're going to hear another strange sound effect, and we're going to go back to the conversation that we had two days ago.
1: Yeah, we're trying to simulate uh, for listeners how disorienting this experience has been for the two of us. Yeah. So it's going to be like
0: an audio Escher painting, or Escher drawing. Mm -hmm. So anyway... There's this anonymous op ed in the New York Times, as everybody knows by now, um, but which we did not know when we first started talking, that. Uh,
1: you were so ignorant back then.
0: Where the author claims to be a member of the, of a different resistance than the left wing resistance, um, but a resistance nonetheless inside the White House that is trying to keep um, Donald Trump from doing crazy things. One of the odd things which I noted on the corner uh, late yesterday. Is that this oddly lends support to an argument that Britt Hume had made about the Brit, about the Bob Woodward book, that the people who were snatching papers off of Donald Trump's desk and preventing him from doing all of these erratic and crazy things were actually great patriots and I and doing a service to the country. And Britt got a lot of grief for that. He also got a lot of grief for saying that this proves that right wing anti Trump people are wrong. Um, for criticizing people who work for the Trump administration. And there, I think he still goes off the rails a little bit. But this does buttress the fact that there are people in the administration who are keeping Trump from uh, going uh, off the rails. And the reason why I think Britt's wrong about criticizing, you know, right wing conservative Trump critics is in part because it's the right wing conservative Trump critics and skeptics um, who are actually keeping this White House on a fairly conservative path. Donald Trump doesn't I'm going to assert this. Donald Trump doesn't care about abortion personally. Um, I think the only abortion bill he has any interest in signing is the one that he has to pay for first. Um, I don't think he actually really cares very much about guns. He may have convinced himself now. I don't think he ever until about 20 minutes ago. Or until he was ran for president this time, cared about conservative justices on the Supreme Court or on the lower courts. And the thing is, is that by putting pressure on him and convincing him that these are things that he has to do to keep even the more rabid parts of the pro-Trump base happy, um, that makes him do good things. And so there should be more constructive criticism of the Trump administration from the right not just from you know rank pundits like me but from voters themselves but anyway uh that's all on the side um i think the you know what's fascinating in washington is how this thing is just freaking catnip for the political class i don't know whether or not this matters to a lot of people in normal america i mean i'm i'm sure they're interested in it but you know uh, the guys on, at my cigar shop were kind of split on it.
1: Split on caring about it? Caring
0: on it, how interested they were in it, um, why this kind of stuff keeps happening. They kinda, there, was, there was some eye rolling. And there were other people who were really into it, right? It's a fascinating political story, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'll just give you my straight take. I think that the author of this did a bad, bad thing because I've been. it's almost been 24 hours now. I keep asking people. Give me a straightforward argument for why this was good for the country or good for the people trying to keep Trump on the straight and narrow, right? It seems to me like sort of the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of secret cabals within the government keeping (laughs) the president from doing crazy things is don't talk about or confirm that there's a secret cabal of people doing that because – by and I, I think uh, you know Rich. Rich Lowry is absolutely right. This was probably intended to wound the president. It um, it makes him. If your concern working in the White House is that the president is too erratic, too paranoid, too conspiratorial, um, has too much of a persecution complex, writing this op-ed only makes all of those problems worse. It doesn't keep him in line. Makes him less trusting of the people trying to keep him in line. So the interesting question is, is and, and and I'm open to some argument. I just haven't heard it. Maybe Jen Rubin has got a brilliant argument about how this person is a patriot. But to me, it just doesn't make any sense as a matter of national interest. Um, about uh, you know for America's reputation for America's reliability. I think David Frum is basically right that this was a really this was this was not a service to any larger cause. The interesting question is, was it a service to this person's cause? And I, 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 I can only think that time will tell on that. Maybe if this person wants to get a gig at, you know MSNBC down the ride right, down the line or get come out with a book, maybe that's in, it's in his interest, but I could see that cutting both ways. Um, it could be an act of sort of of, of moral sort of character vanity. Where they want to—this was my initial take in the piece I did for the corner—was that they want to sort of have. Remember that scene in um, uh, *Clear and Present Danger*, where Harrison Ford goes into the other, the the bad guy's office, and says, "You know, you're gonna, you're going to jail. You're in trouble." And the bad guy <coughs> opens up his safe and says, "Hey, Jack, do you have one of these? It's a get out of free, get out of jail free card, and it was like an authorization to do what he was doing." I kind of think that like this guy thinks that this thing is a bulwark against future criticism for having worked for the Trump administration. He goes, hey, look, I was that guy. I was the guy. I'm on record.
1: Or uh, so also the the villain of Lethal Weapon 2 brandishing his diplomatic immunity. Right. Right. We all know what happens next. Yes. Uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm too
0: old for this stuff. Uh, and um, that was a reference, not a literal statement. Uh, that's what that's what Riggs says. Uh, yeah, right yeah, before he shoots him. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> no,
1: he says, just been revoked. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's the, the yeah, yeah, that's yeah lethal weapon spoilers.
0: Yeah, well, that's at, at some point that's your problem if you haven't seen. Yeah, true. Yet. And so I do think that the New York Times is in big big trouble if it turns out that this guy is like some doofus from the you know. Uh, the, you know, the assistant secretary for the comptroller of the currency or something like that, right? (laughs) It's gotta be somebody important. It can't just be someone who technically has senior staff status. I'm inclined to think that James Bennett and the guys at the New York Times op ed page understand that and that this is probably somebody of some real stature. But you're way too young to have been paid attention to this, you know, there are a lot of people saying, oh, this is like the Pentagon Papers. It's not. <laughs> uh, there's some people saying it's like Deep Throat. It's not. It. But what it is a lot like is the frenzy in the 1990s about uh, the book Primary Colors, about Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. That well,
1: um, About, quote unquote. Yeah, it like, was about Bill Clinton. Y- yeah.
0: And um, which they made an absolutely terrible movie about, which, which completely betrayed the spirit of the book because the spirit of the book was about how unbelievably promiscuous in every sense um, Bill Clinton was, you know, and in the movie that turned into this, like, glorious thing about Hillary, and it was dumb. Um, and also, John Travolta cannot do a good Bill Clinton impersonation. Mm-hmm. And um, – um, but that – the search for the identity of anonymous, because Joe Klein wrote it anonymously, Uh,
1: Breaking news.
0: (laughs) And that became an obsession. I mean, it was like trying to find the last golden ticket in Willy Wonka. They they ran the early artificial intelligence programs, language recognition stuff. There were guys at MIT who were going all over. People went berserk trying to figure it out. And I think that that's what's going to happen with this. And I thought one of the most interesting things in the response from the White House was uh, Sarah Sanders' statement where she said the media trying to find the identity um, of the author, of the gutless traitor author of this, um, should stop. And instead they should just call the New York Times and kind of harass them. And (laughs) it was weird wording because it kind of could be read, and Steve Inskeep made this point, it could be read as saying, uh, we want to move on from this story, Uh, stop talking about this story, right? Or it could be, I think that that. Well, I do think that this is going to make Trump more paranoid and crazy. It's also going to create enormous dysfunction among the staff, and it's probably really unhealthy to go on this because, like, it does feel like Trump is going to want to find maybe John Kelly or someone like that, you know, his Tommy Lee Jones (sighs) from The Fugitive to do his, you know, the hard target search of every gas station. Residents, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse,
1: and doghouse in that
0: area. To find this person. And the funny thing is, is that there are a lot of candidates who it could be. My own, if I had to guess, I think Jim Garrity makes, we can link to it in the show notes, uh, Garrity makes a good case for John Huntsman. Um, I think Dan Coates is in the running. Um, uh, I don't think it's, um, full disclosure, when this story broke, I jokingly sent an email to my wife who works for Nikki Haley, and I said, did you write this? And she wrote back and said, you're the second person to ask me that today. And I wrote back saying, uh, that's that's a non-denial denial, um, which she didn't think was funny. And uh, But I don't think I, – I, I have no inside information, But I, my, except for the fact I know my wife didn't write it. And I don't think Nikki Haley wrote it. Um, it wouldn't be in her interest. I don't think Larry Kudlow wrote it. Um, uh, there are people who think Kevin has it. Um, both Larry and Kevin are f- – Friends and former colleagues of mine, I, I'm not convinced by either of those. Um, so it's interesting. I, what I, I do think is kind of fascinating is that no one in all of the Sturm and Drang about this, no one is um, questioning or calling or or calling BS on the substance of it. Right? I mean, yeah. no one. And everyone's because we watch politics like it's entertainment these days. Everyone's pointing to. The treachery of it, right? The betrayal of it, the gutlessness of it, the cowardice of it, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, some of that, I say, I think, is perfectly defensible. But although Donald Trump tweeting that it was treason, um, I think is nuts and dangerous. Um, it's not treason. Um, I think him calling for The New York Times to, you know, have The Times turn this person over to the government is insane. There's nothing in that op-ed that reveals you know, classified information. By
1: the way, the nuclear codes are. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, And and it kind of does confirm, you know, I mean, look, it perfectly tracks the stuff that Paul Ryan has said. You know, that Paul Ryan told Mark Levovich in that big New York Times profile, you don't know all of the things I prevented, right? All (laughs) the calamities I I helped avoid. Um, The John
1: Titor problem again. John Titor. Uh, I mentioned him at the end of the Betke episode as the... Time traveler who claimed to be from the future. Oh, right. had this apocalypse That's that right. he averted, and now we don't believe him
0: because prophets issue warnings, not
1: predictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and and I know there are a lot of people out there who want to credit every denial that came out after the Woodward book. I, I I I probably credit some of the denials. I don't think what Woodward writes is gospel. I've been a critic of Woodward stuff many many times. I think the the deathbed visitation with uh, uh, the head of the former head of the CIA, Bill Casey. I've always thought that was very sketchy, and I think the book was Veil. Vale. But I'm, I tend to think that, you know, I was telling a friend of mine who's very pro-Trump, you know, you can probably get away with calling BS or one or two of the anecdotes in the Woodward book. But the idea that they're all fake is just nonsense. And I think it's been confirmed, the story about, was it Cohen, who stole the doc? you know, who did the yoink, stole the document off of uh, – Trump's desk. We now have the the actual document that that, that was and that um, Woodward has kept copies of a lot of these things. And so the substance of the letter tracks with things that I've heard from people who work for the Trump administration. It tracks with stuff that we've heard in other books. It tracks with stuff that we've seen in other reporting. But the president is erratic, right? And this gets me back to my original point, is that you know, the whole point of the conservative movement was always to do you know, we'll put it this way. The point of the conservative movement was to move the center of the gravity of the American of the American electorate rightward. And that didn't necessarily always mean, therefore, doing whatever was good for the Republican Party. And it seems to me that it's analogous to what the role is for good, serious, patriotic, morally serious, professional conservatives who work in the Trump administration is to uh, move his Overton window at any moment or time um, where he might start acting like an escape monkey from a cocaine study. And and so that brings me back to my point about how I don't know how this op-ed helped any of that. And mm-hmm. right? I think that made it all worse.
1: Uh, yeah. So that's also a curious thing. Why if, if you were so – if you thought it was so important that all of this stuff were being clandestinely done, why then reveal it? But I guess the maybe the author was thinking that the Woodward uh, testimony already made that public that like yeah. stuff is being grabbed from Trump's desk, so it's like it's time to act. But still, to, the to act seems strange to me, which makes me think. Here's my I'm throwing my hat into the rank punditry ring. This strikes me as analogous to the actions of these uh self righteous. Millennial types who are convinced of their own rectitude and ignorant of consequences. So, like Snowden leaking NSA right. stuff, Reality Winner, um, yeah. are, uh, apparently a, a real person's name, also leaking things, just like for because they're convinced that, okay, something needs to be done, screw procedure. Uh, but it, it's, that's their thinking, but really in the back of their mind, or maybe even more towards the front there's more of a uh, a selfish motive involved of like, oh, yeah, I have to be the one to do this. This is a heroic narrative of of their own creation. So this makes me think that it's a, yo- a younger person. But then you'd think, why would the Times care if it's like someone really not even that much older than I am?
0: Yeah, there there are a bunch of people on Twitter because I don't think it's particularly well written and it's got a lot of cliches in it. And some of that may be covering these tracks, right? You know, I mean, there's this the whole, you know, Almost, you know, QAnon level, you know, analysis of the word lodestar star" <laughs> to make it sound like it was Pence. I don't think it was Pence. I don't think it was in Pence's interest. Um, it could be someone who works for Pence. That's possible. But there are a bunch of people on the, on the twitters who want to say that oh, it reads like some intern wrote it, and I, I think it kind of does. But that could be that could A be covering tracks, right? Or B, it could be that the person who wrote it wasn't a good writer, and basically the Times ran it through their um, clichéd op-ed pasta maker, <laughs> and um, uh, which is entirely possible. It could also mean, see that the person who wrote it is young and important, right? I mean, like, there's some people who think, you know, my friend, our friend Cliff Asnes, um, I think is serious when he says he thinks it's Jared, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which would be interesting, Um and uh, – but like there are if, – if it's Coates or Huntsman, you know, those guys – I have a lot more respect for Coates. I think Coates is a serious guy and I think – one of the reasons why I think it makes sense about him is that um, he's getting up there age-wise. He's been humiliated a couple times by the president. Uh-huh. I think he's a patriotic guy but there are a lot of polit- – older politicians in particular – who are just basically cliché generators. Yeah. They think in those terms. They (laughs) talk in those terms. Um, People like, you know, John Kerry and Bill Bradley were legendary about it. You know, you could almost – I mean, I think there are probably kids in grade school who could create computer programs that could generate one of their speeches. And (laughs) um, um, so I don't know. But the idea that this – I think, you know, it's it's a classic example of how – um you know there are some mysteries that just drive people nuts right and they have to un- unravel the mystery and um you know it's sort of like chief wiggum in the simpsons where he says to uh um bart and ralph um what is your strange fascination with the forbidden closet of mystery um, which has all his guns and stuff in it yes. <laughs> and um and so I think the press corps is going to be all over it. Um, if, if you're right and then it's some junior person who's not really that important, it's going to look very bad for the New York
1: Times. Yeah. But then the
0: New York Times basically weaponized some schmuck and pretended that they were a more important person than they were. If it's like Pompeo or somebody like that, I mean, Katie, bar the door. That's, that's, that's wild. I mean, I don't think it's Pompeo. But um, uh,
1: time will tell. Oh, uh, wait, wait. No, we're getting exclusive confirmation. John Barron. John Barron wrote the, <laughs> wrote the op-ed. Or maybe just Barron. Uh, <laughs> um, what uh, a twist that would be.
0: Um, so, okay, there it was another thing I wanted to talk about. It's not a long thing, but I just think it's kind of fascinating. I, I mentioned it cryptically on Twitter. Um, when I came home from uh, vacation, there was a huge amount of, of mail piled up. And I got one fairly official, you know, One, of, you know, because I wear so many hats and do me so many different things, one of my favorite things is to look for checks in the mail. There were none, alas. Maybe you took them when you were house-sitting.
1: Um, I can neither confirm nor deny. I gave them to the author of the op-ed. Yeah.
0: Given that you own, that you have proprietary information about every aspect of my life, you could easily have cashed my checks without me knowing. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, I got one letter from... Uh, A fellow – I don't want to read the name because I actually Googled the name, and it turns out there's a real person, and I don't think that's the person who sent me this. But I got a blackmail letter, and I get a lot of weird mail. Remember a couple months ago I got that horrible thing I handed over to the Secret Service about Trump being assassinated? Yeah. Which had uh, some truly X-rated Photoshop stuff to it as well, which we won't go into. Yeah. Yeah.
1: and there was no bigfoot involved, otherwise we would,
0: yeah, no, of course, um, uh, <laughs> goes without saying <laughs> um, but anyway, I'll just read you a little bit of this, uh, he had it, he sent it to my home address and says, "Hello, Jonah, I'm going to cut to the chase. My name is black triangle seventy three um you know, it's sort of like that old joke about you know the stripper, you know. With a name like Crystal Chandelier. Of course she was going to grow up to be a stripper. Um, But anyway, my name is Black Triangle 73, and I know about the secret you are keeping from your wife and everyone else. More importantly, I have evidence of what you have been hiding. I won't go into the specifics here in case your wife intercepts this, but you know what I am talking about. You don't know me personally, and nobody hired me to look into you, so it's not Christopher Steele. Um, nor did I go out looking to burn you. It is just your bad luck that I stumbled across your misadventures while working a job around Washington. I then put in more time than I probably should have looking into your life. Frankly, I am ready to forget about all about you and let you get on with your life. And I'm going to give you two options that will accomplish this very thing. Those two options are either to ignore this letter or simply pay me $14,900. Let's examine those two options in more detail. Option one is to ignore the letter. Let me tell you what will happen if you choose this path. I will take this evidence and send it to your wife. And as insurance against you intercepting it before your wife gets it, I will also send copies to her friends, family, and to all of your nearest neighbors. So, Jonah... Even if you decide to come clean with your wife, it won't protect her from the humiliation she will feel when her friends and family find out your sordid details. Option two is to pay me $14,900. We'll call this a confidentiality fee. Now let me tell you what happens if you choose this path. Your secret remains secret. You go on with your life as though none of this has ever happened, though you may want to do a better job at keeping your misdeeds secret in the future. Yeah, come on. (laughs) And then, um, oh, one last thing. He says, at this point, you may be thinking, I'll just go to the cops, which is why I have used a fake name, fake return address, and taken steps to ensure this letter cannot be traced back to me. So that won't help. And it won't stop the evidence from destroying your life. I am not looking to break your bank. I just want to be compensated for the time I put in. It's also fair. I mean, you know, it's, it's a fair pay for fair work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then it goes on a great length with a 20-point explanation about how I can send them this in Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if uh, if, if this matters, but – well, I, w- I won't read it. It's just the endless Bitcoin uh, address. Um, and so anyway, I'm reading this. And, you know, for two seconds, your heart kind of sinks. You're like – what the hell's going on, right? And then I start doing a mental inventory about all of my misdeeds. And, you know, I think the worst one is probably reading Bigfoot erotica on my podcast, which my wife knows about. And She's
1: not the only one. Yeah,
0: and so I, uh, I showed it to my wife and I said, hey, sweetie, look, I'll be honest with you. There are things about my life I don't want you to know, but there's nothing about my life that I would pay $15,000 to keep secret from you. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't done any of these kinds of things, you know. And so – uh and and the fact that this guy clearly doesn't really know who I am, right? I mean because you would write this in a way that gave some clue – you know, oh, you're a journalist. You care about your reputation, or you don't want to lose your job at AI. I'm a big
1: like fan of tyranny of cliches. I think it's underrated. Exactly. <laughs> you, know,
0: you know, little truths, um, like the underratedness of tyranny of cliches would go a long way. Anyway, I sent this to um, I sent a picture of it to uh, John Podoritz, and he said he got a very similar version by email. Oh. Um, and I think what it is is this guy basically. It's like, it's like uh, Nigerian prince spam emails, right? Uh huh. You know, if you send out, you know, I mean, it's impressive it's on paper and then he got my home address, but he, I wouldn't be surprised if all my neighbors got a similar letter. Um, you just look up real estate records or whatever and just send them out and you figure that for every thousand you send out, one person or ten people, I don't know, you know, did cheat on their wives, did, you know, wake up, um, you know, in a trunk with a teenage boy or something like that and, you know, and... And they're willing to keep it a secret, but I—I I got no, you know, my life is an open book, and uh, and I just think it's a sort of a fascinating insight into the scumminess of parts of American life. So.
1: Yeah, that does sound. Wasn't it? Was it Gary Hart who challenged journalists to find his uh, the skeletons in his closet, which he said had none? Yes, yes. Kind and of, there. kind of sounds like that's what you're doing here.
0: No, no, no. I mean, look again. Um, Have I made mistakes? Yes, I have, (laughs) but none. Most of them, my wife knows about. You know, and I've never cheated on her. I've never done any of that kind of stuff. You know, you know, if you want to, if if, you know, if you want to go through the last 15 years of the absolute seamiest side of my browser history. You know, maybe I'd give you
1: fifty bucks to keep it a secret, but you know, I got nothing. Um, well, again, we've already read the Bigfoot erotica. on Exactly. Air. So, what, 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 what else is left? Uh, have you considered the possibility that the author of the New York Times op-ed is the person blackmailing you?
0: It, that's that's another possibility. So, um, anyway, I just thought this would be a little interesting slice of life for for our for our listeners. Um, so, what else? Is there anything else that we need to discuss? It sounds like. Brett Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed. Um, I just wrote a column, be out on Friday, about the uh, the just just unbelievable ass clownery of uh, Cory Booker. I tried to do it because there are few columns I hate writing more than columns about Supreme Court nomination stuff, because it's the same. I have the same argument that I've been making for 15 years. It was basically the Ben Sass argument that mm-hmm. because we politicize the court, we've we now, and we've given the court such incredible power that we treat the court like it's um, um, a legislative and executive branch. And of course, we're going to spend enormous amounts of money and energy, if you know, to elect someone to the Supreme Court if they're going to write the laws of the country. And uh, um, and uh, but anyway, so I tried to do something a little different with the column today, and I I, I uh, compared it to the existential theater of the absurd, where. Everyone does uh, incredibly wacky, crazy, busy stuff, but it makes no difference because life is a meaningless drudgery and that we have no control over our own fate um, and that Godot never arrives. And um, you know, so all of this stuff with looking for the documents, demanding documents, then saying that you're going to violate all of these norms to reveal the documents, and then it turns out that you didn't violate the norms to reveal the documents – and that in terms, and then in fact, they weren't actually confidential documents in the first place. It's all just, um, I know you're not allowed to say Chinese fire drill anymore. Um, but it's all just, uh, showiness for showiness's sake. Um,
1: post comedy, perhaps. Post comedy works very well. Yeah.
0: Um, which I seem to recall will show up again as a theme later in this. Part.
1: No, it already has. Oh, has it really? I think.
0: Okay. This is confusing now. <laughs> um, oh, but something else that shows up either before or after. In this podcast is a reference to Burt Reynolds, and right as we were walking it's after, is it after? Okay, well, uh-huh. we did not know the in the okay. So, in the future of this podcast, which is in the past, we did not know when we recorded it that in the future, which is this part of the podcast, that Burt Reynolds would die as right before we came into the studio. Yep. And so, uh, I should mention that I love Burt Reynolds. Um, I tweeted when the news came that Burt Reynolds was actually. A great actor, but he moved on to become a great movie star, and I think there's a big difference between the two. Um, uh, and while I don't think anyone can really defend Cannonball Run 2, <laughs> um, those movies in particular, it's like Cannonball Run, someone on Twitter had made, said the Cannonball Run was terrible, and I said that anyone who thinks that is on the fighting side of me. Um, have you ever seen Cannonball Run?
1: No. Oh, Jesus.
0: Um, have you ever, have you ever seen Hooper? Nope. Have you ever seen Deliverance?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Um have you ever seen Sharky's Machine?
1: No. Never even heard of that.
0: Uh that was that was his very brief noir period. Um and uh um but his movies, particularly The Cannonball Run and um, Smoking the Bandit. ah, oh, Smoking the Bandit. Um I think that's where I fell in love with Basset Hounds. Um Those are sort of classic examples of movies that I don't want to watch again for fear of finding out they're not any good. Uh huh. Because I loved them so dearly, um, in the seventies. And people forget, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot more, but Burt Reynolds was, um, I think he was like the number one box office draw for like four or five years in a row. I mean, he was huge. And, um, and he was in many ways, I think, it's difficult to think of an actor or a movie star who was just simply more physically comfortable in front of a camera. Which is why like the Cannonball Run thing, which was very close in a lot of ways it was really a throwback to the Frank Sinatra Rat Pack movies where they were just like drunk having fun and <laughs> oh yeah, the cameras are rolling. Let's tell some jokes. Um but I I just I I love I love those movies. Um Anyway, so uh Burt Reynolds, rest in peace. Um there's a famous story where he and Clint Eastwood were really close friends and they both went to an audition together, I think. And the review was, uh, Reynolds couldn't act and Eastwood had no chance in the movies because he had that giant Adam's apple. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, anyway, that proved them wrong. Uh, anything else that we need to uh, address before we get back to the, uh, before we get back to the future? <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I don't think so, and I think that the portal is is opening right now.
0: Okay. Oh, I I see it. What else do we want to talk about? Um, Oh, summer vacation, right? Um, Yeah. Some people on Twitter were very cross with you because um, I asked when I was doing (laughs) the episode from – the cab of my rv in uh in sandpoint idaho uh uh-huh.
1: Um,
0: i asked for a report on how my cats were doing <laughs> and uh and there are some listeners who actually wanted to know how my cats were doing but you went off on some other tangent
1: oh okay i'll i'll give it too guess. late now i mean i know I, how my
0: cats are doing now yeah
1: but i can i can <laughs> describe how the cats treated me um gracie the good, cat, the good cat is indeed a good cat she's a great cat
0: yeah, she's legitimately one of the best cats I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, she is kind and very snuggly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, if if I had one complaint about her, it's that sometimes I would be on my computer and then suddenly she would just be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Between yeah. the computer and me, Ralph was a little more of a loner. Yeah, but by the end of my time taking care of your animals, I had I was able to go up to him and. Uh, and pet him a little bit. Uh-huh. So I I think that's impressive because from my understanding he doesn't even let you do that. No,
0: I so... I I think I pet Ralph once in the last four years, <laughs> um, and I think he's been in my lap once in the last six. Since oh, I never long. got that. And uh, he only cares about my wife, which is why when I call them the when I call Gracie the good cat and Ralph my wife's cat, people think I mean that she's he's a bad cat. It's not really that. It's just that. He's a cat
1: who happens to be in my house as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and also that you can't really judge his quality because you don't have enough data. Yeah. <laughs> and also he's out most nights because
0: he's he's got things to do out on the town.
1: Fighting crime. Um and so how was Chicago? Uh Chicago was a good it's a good place. It was uh I, it's Did you do an I, architecture tour? Not really. I didn't I did not have much time there. Um the most chicagoy thing that I had well, the two most Chicago-y things I had time to do. One, like just hours after I got there, I went to uh, uh, Lou, Lou Malnati's uh-huh. Pizza. It is pizza. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that was never that was never something you were contesting. It was just the idea that the sh- the pizza museum or whatever would be in Chicago. Well, I mean, I do think the deep dish pizza is basically casserole,
0: pizza-flavored casserole.
1: I mean, it was – whatever it was, I had six pieces of it, and it was delicious. And we I was with two friends, and we ordered – Two medium deep dish pizzas from uh-huh. their menu, uh, and our waiter questioned whether we could finish them. And I, of course, took that as a as an affront to my manhood, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and had then, of course, to finish every piece of pizza, which right. we did. And the waiter was impressed. We didn't it, did, it didn't get us a meeting with Lou, um, but he was impressed. And the other most Chicago-y thing I did, I did a lot of running along the lakefront trail uh-huh. which is beautiful uh the weather wasn't great while we were there but that was how I got most of my tourism in I ran from roughly the area of the magnificent mile all the way up to loyal Chicago and then back nice uh which is 18 miles total so I got a lot of good scenery and sort of, there's a point where you can turn around on the on the lakefront trail and look just and there's Chicago right on the lake and it's just it's beautiful
0: yeah so I um it pains me to say this because uh, you know, my first loyalties are still to New York, even though I think New York is not what it once was. Um, but architecturally, I think Chicago is America's best city. Um, there's a theme to the pudding kind of thing. Yeah, and
1: it looks more like Gotham, which is cool. Um, I think it literally was. Yeah, it literally was Gotham in the Dark Knight. Most yeah. of the like actual urban scenes of that were meant to be Gotham City were filmed. Uh, ...in Chicago. Although, um, maybe we can put it in the show notes. Have you ever seen Buffalo City
0: Hall? No. It is the most Gotham-y built public building. <laughs> um, it's really, really impressive. Um, and I think they did some Detroit stuff in some of the Dark Knight thing, um, but maybe not. I don't know.
1: Uh, Dark Knight Rises was mostly... Most of the city shots were filmed in Pittsburgh.
0: Pittsburgh. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, I'm a big fan of Chicago. I think Chicago. I'm a big believer. I think you, the way you judge cities is, is how much you want to walk around them. Mm-hmm. Which is why I don't think L.A. is a good city. L.A. has got some good neighborhoods, but you don't walk around L.A. <sighs> um, uh, San Francisco is a great walking city. Yeah, I can... Boston's a pretty good walking city. Chicago is a great walking city. Uh-huh. Um, and on that score, I think New York comes might be better than Chicago, but or at least it used to be. But Manhattan has become so
1: homogenized that it's so much less interesting to walk around than it once was. You, whenever you, I, I mean, I have no real. I've only been to New York once. I have no real experience of authentic New York. But anytime you sort of talk about the homogenization of New York, it makes me think of these like, uh, these transgressive art critics who missed the days when uh, the subways were covered in graffiti and all that. Yeah, so
0: I, I, it's weird. I, I made fun of. I hated. In the in the early '90s, right, the, the nation, I mean the magazine, and uh, and maybe some guys at the Village Voice, R.I.P. Yeah, I don't know. it breaks my. It, it makes me it does make it doesn't break my heart, but it makes me sad. Um, I think whenever old newspapers die, it's sad. Um, but uh, there was this thing on the left that you know missed the days where Times Square was full of. Um, training hookers who would cut your throat with a razor blade, right? <laughs> and where the, the, was full of porn theaters, right? I didn't miss that, right? Um, I didn't miss the days of getting mugged. I didn't miss, um, the, the massive amounts of homelessness, which are now back. But there was this brief moment, um, in the early to mid 1990s where, um, because largely because of Giuliani, um,
1: Who's getting a very strange final act for his for his public life? He
0: is. He is. He is. Uh, you know those choose your own adventure books? <laughs> yes. He chose poorly.
1: <laughs> um, I got so the first time I read one of those, I didn't understand how they worked, so I was incredibly confused. That this was not recently. This was like when I was five or something.
0: Uh-huh. Um, so you say. And um, uh, but there was this golden moment right where all the stuff that was still great about New York City. Mom and pop shops, diners everywhere, weird um quirky, you know, comic book stores and antique stores in all sorts of neighborhoods. There was lots of individualized commerce. Because like when I grew up, there were very few national chains in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, or really anywhere. Um Yeah, but like New York was one of the late last to get like inundated with with chain with chain stores. And we didn't have malls the way most of the country does. And yeah. um and so there was this brief moment where not only were you not going to get mugged, but there was sort of the bourgeois, middle class retail stuff really thri- started to thrive. And that was great. And now, because Manhattan is so safe, um, uh, it's, John, uh, you know, which is great. I'm, I'm in favor of that. But it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a very Schumpeterian point, right, is you have to look at things you know, as a timeline rather than as an, a single instant, you know, a snapshot of the Titanic right before it leaves port.
1: I, so you've been saying this. Uh It is true as far as it goes, but I I went through, because the movie came out at like when I was four or five, Uh I I became briefly obsessed with the the Titanic as a child. And it actually almost uh, hit another ship the moment it left port. Okay, fair enough. Fun fact. But yes, your point stands. Yes, but you look at things over time,
0: right? A snapshot of... My daughter, when she's one, tells you all sorts of interesting things, but it doesn't tell you a lot about what she's like when she's 21 or 51 or 101, right? And New York City, there was this brief sort of sweet spot that it hit um, in the 1990s, where almost all the stuff that was great about New York City was still intact, and all the stuff that was bad about New York City was on the decline. Mm-hmm. Now it's becoming much more of a, you know, uh, you know, I think the median. The average apartment price now is over a million dollars in Manhattan for a crappy one-bedroom, you know, kind of apartment. And people are just being sort of priced out. I gather there's still sort of authentic, organic neighborhoods in places like Brooklyn and Queens and stuff. But Manhattan used to be much more neighborhoody than it is now. And um, the Jewish delis are on the decline, are almost gone, or at least the old ones. Um, so there's just a lot of stuff that I'm sort of um, wistful about about, about New York. Don't remember how we got on this, and I don't know why we're staying on it.
1: Uh, because I mentioned Chicago, and you started talking about New York. Fair enough. Uh, Chicago's
0: still a place with lots of neighborhoods. Yeah, and has a neighborhoody culture to it, which I like.
1: Yeah, and while we're talking about midwestern cities, another thing that I did uh, while I was in my home of Cincinnati, Ohio, was sort of tr- I tried to experience Cincinnati as a tourist which I don't think I've ever really done that's a fun thing to do yeah and I, I think I did a pretty good job of it I, I I did not know this until relatively recently but the tallest building in or the, I guess it's technically the t- second tallest building but the tallest building with an observation deck in Cincinnati you can you can go up there And uh-huh. it's, it's like it's six bucks I mean it's nothing it's no skyscraper by New York or Chicago standards but you can see the whole area obviously from the top of it and it was just sort of mind-blowing to me just like see all of these things that I places that I had been things that I knew about but like pieced together laid out in the sort of um, skyward geographic configuration and it just it was a, and I did other things like that but it was it was a good experience. I'm glad I did that because I've I'm not technically from Cincinnati I'm from a, little, a town a little north of it but mm-hmm. it is where it is a Midwestern city. Has things to commend it, and I've, I don't think I'd really experienced many of them until last week. So I'm glad I did that.
0: Um, go to Cincinnati, people. It's did, a fun place. Did you? Um, there's a great episode of Thirty Rock where. Oh, they go to Cleveland. They go to Cleveland. Yeah, yeah
1: and yeah, and, and uh, Liz loves it.
0: Yeah, it's become it's become shorthand with my wife and I because we really liked Bend, Oregon, and we we're thinking maybe this is where we would one day like get a house or something like that. And she was like getting the real estate bug, which is always dangerous, and <laughs> and she was like, uh, you know, and so she was like, I really like it here, but I'm worried about, you know, the Cleve thing because there's this line in 30 Rock where uh, Alec Baldwin says, you know, where Liz says, I'm thinking about moving to Cleveland, and... And oh, uh, says, look, we all have these moments where we just want to wing off to the cleave and <laughs> and escape from life. You know, it's why I bought a condo in Port Arthur, Texas. But eventually the vacation ends. And, you know, we've had this notion about doing this in um, in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We really love Portsmouth. And we were thinking about getting a place there um, if we could scrape up the money. Um, and the thing with Bend is so freaking far away and so inconvenient. But it's really a cool Great part of the country. I mean, it's full of hippies and 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 people who take artisanal beer way too seriously. <laughs> but um, uh, but you think that Cincinnati is a superior city to the Cleve?
1: Oh, well. So let's just move on, just I'm kidding. <laughs> so as a native Cincinnatian, I grew up with a with an inherent anti-Cleveland sure. um, uh, animus. That's the word. That's uh-huh. the legal term. But it was actually going to the 2016 RNC in Cleveland, where I—that was the first time I had really been there. Yeah. I'd driven past it before, but I—that was the first time I really spent time in the city. And I—I I, I think it—I'm—I'm I'm more fond of it now than I than I was after having actually gone to it. I can't—I can't just uh, nakedly bash it the way I used to because it's—it's sort of like Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. Uh, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati are all very similar places. I, yeah. I understand to an outsider like. You, so these people must confuse the three of them all the time. True. Sure. <laughs> but i but not sh- Toledo.
0: Toledo's a different thing.
1: Well, it doesn't start with C. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that that keeps it apart. But no, I can't I, I as my hometown, I I have to uh go to bat for Cincinnati. Um I think it's the scenic beauty of it in terms of hills. Cleveland is much flatter. Uh-huh. Um but Cleveland does have uh a lakefront even if it's Lake Erie. <laughs> uh no, I mean they're are I, I'll 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 stick with Cincinnati, but I, I can't hate Cleveland the way I used
0: to. Did you ever see the old one of the first uh, fake commercials for um?
1: Oh, are you talking about the the Cleveland uh, tourism? No, no, this is a Saturday Night Live commercial. Hastily um, made Cleveland tourism videos. The title where
0: they uh, um uh, they it's a play it's a parody of. The – maybe – and, God, I hope I'm not just completely fake-imagining this. uh, (laughs) It's some sort of weird recovered memory. But I haven't thought about this in a long, long time. But Do I need to take you under hypnosis? uh, Now I'm fascinated to find out if it actually exists. We'll find out. Um, Where um, the old – you may not remember them, but there were these old uh, ketchup commercials, Heinz 57 commercials, where they played the song, anticipation. Um, I guess Carly Simon or something. Yeah, that's and Carly it, Simon. And it takes so long for the ketchup to pour because that just shows how good it is. <laughs> um, and they did it a could similar – It also be frozen. But they did a similar spoof with genuine Lake Erie water, <laughs> <laughs> which was full of like beer can tabs and like, I don't know, band-aids or whatever. And it took forever to pour because uh-huh. uh, – Lake Erie wasn't the one that caught fire, right? No,
1: that was the Cuyahoga River. Yeah, and yeah. See, that is something I will still make fun of Cleveland for. The Cuyahoga River is caught on fire at least twice. Um, that's just kind of funny. Which is bad, right? Yeah. Um, also like vaguely apocalyptic. Well, uh, if did I ever show this to you?
0: I think they did a This American Life or a radio lab on it. Um there's a town in Pennsylvania.
1: Ooh, Centralia. Is that it? Yeah. Centralia. Oh yeah, I've been wanting to go there. The coal seam fire, and that yeah, started in should, the
0: '60s. We should link to it um, in uh, the show notes because it's a. Just search on it on YouTube. Basically, there was a somehow there was a fire that started in a coal mine. It lit the coal, the seam of coal under the ground. Uh huh. And it's it. If you were inclined to think in these terms, you would think hell was reclaiming this town <laughs>
1: yeah i i'm told that the the earth is not actively steaming anymore smoke that they're smoking yeah. in that town so it is like that hazard of living there is now gone but there's still but it's an abandoned town right yeah there's like think, one
0: person left or something like that. yeah
1: it, it it was been it had been reclaimed through eminent domain but some people refused to leave um but yeah that those places fascinate me and there's the but while we're on the subject of apocalyptic things in the in the in the Midwest, a couple of years ago, there's this giant statue of Jesus off of I seventy five. I guess going north is the easiest way to see it uh, between Cincinnati and Dayton, and it was known throughout the state as I think uh, Touchdown Jesus. Oh yeah 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 yeah. And That's not near Loyola. No, Loyola Chicago. No Loyola. Yeah, I guess Loy- Notre Dame. Is it near Notre Dame? Well, that's a different thing. There's okay, a, yeah, there yeah, yeah. a touchdown Jesus at Notre Dame, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is a different touchdown Jesus. So you have to you have to keep these things straight in the Midwest. But in th- this touchdown Jesus was a, like a hallmark of the highway for years, and a, like maybe a decade ago, lightning struck it and it caught on fire, which is just like Old Testament style yeah, like that's not Thou right. shalt not worship graven images. <laughs> uh, but they once they caught fire, they rebuilt it, um, made it slightly different looking. Now it's like $5 foot long, Jesus. It used to be, it's hard to explain the difference in hand gestures uh, on on air, uh, but look up pictures and we'll put them in the show notes and it will make sense. Are any of the hand gestures white supremacist? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but what isn't these days? Yeah,
0: well, one thing that isn't is donors' trust.
1: Wow, I <laughs> love that segue.
0: If you're listening to this show you probably you're probably already bought in on the ideas of limited government, personal responsibility and free enterprise. Do you also use your charitable giving to support those same ideas? If so, Donor's Trust can simplify your giving and take it to the next level. With a donor-advised fund at Donor's Trust, you can support the nonprofit group Uh, you care about the most, or groups that you care about the most, from think tanks to your church or synagogue to the countless charities using private dollars to solve public problems. The favorable tax benefits, additional privacy, and ease of use make donor-advised funds the fastest-growing charitable tool in the country. A fund is easy to start and more accessible than many people realize. You know, a common myth about donor-advised funds like Donors Trust, is so that they're just for the fabulously wealthy. That's not true. Take a look and see if your annual giving could benefit from working with a strategic partner like Donors Trust, who shares your goal of advancing liberty. You know, we probably really should have had this ad in the one with Pete Be- Becky um, on Hayek, because um, the themes of Donors Trust are so much closer to the sort of importance of civil society, the importance of freedom and liberty. But... um You know, maybe uh, the people who um, are listening to this will be more inclined um, to give to Donors Trust because they're just such wonderful people and they're much more interested in your summer vacation. (laughs) So regardless of which episode you were listening to, you should go visit DonorsTrust.org slash dingo to access your free six reasons to use a donor advisory fund guide. Um, Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus: two additional eBooks to help you identify principal, principal-driven charities that deserve your support. Again, visit DonorsTrust.org/Dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust. Take your charitable giving to the next level by visiting DonorsTrust.org/Dingo. So um
1: you are you gonna talk about your vacation at all because i I'm, I'm sort of your your flippant remark in that in that reading that ad copy made me realize like, wow, why are people really I have no there's no reason why people should care about my vacation. This is your show I, I suppose that's true. Um, I, mean, I guess you've been updating the world via Twitter pretty yeah pretty- I mean if if, if, if if you're
0: I mean if you're really interested in this, you should go to my Twitter feed and just search. We'll just scroll down through the media. Yeah, tab that'll, that'll because, be a good summary. Um, it's just endless pictures of the dogs having a wonderful time. The dogs had a much better vacation <laughs> than I did. I will put. The, I will stipulate that I enjoyed it. Um, there's something weird about my wife and I that we really like these cross country drives. I'm not sure I would do it again with the RV. Um, I get the appeal of the RV, but I'm not a super RV guy. Um, I don't. I don't like driving really big things. Um, and um,
1: You'll never be a Star Destroyer pilot with that attitude. I think that's probably
0: right. And and there are other reasons why I won't be a Star Destroyer pilot. <laughs> um, and um, even though this was not a giant Winnebago by any stretch of the imagination, uh, part of the problem was uh, at National Review, I did a Goldberg file right before I left, and they used a stock photo from somewhere of a giant RV towing a Jeep behind it, and people assumed it was actually a picture of what we were driving. And so I was getting all this advice about how to, like, back up or, you know, make sure you you disengage the transmission, otherwise the Jeep will burst into flames and all this kind of stuff.
1: Is there someone you want to publicly blame for that choice? Can we blame the, the G-File editor, or do we want to keep his name? Oh, was probably Mark Wright. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, Mark, there you go. And, Your fault. Um,
0: and again, I think I talked about this the last time with you, is that, you know... Uh, Huge part of the argument for doing the RV thing in the first place was that, you know, my daughter, who basically grown up doing cross-country drives with us every summer until at least she started going to camp, um, uh, was like, I don't want to spend, you know, 6,000 miles in the backseat with dogs breathing on me and lying on me. (laughs) And we thought that was a pretty legitimate Complaint, and we thought, well, let's give this RV thing a try. Mm-hmm. And the problem was is that the dogs had zero. Well, Pippa, every now and then, the Springer Spaniel, every now and then, would sleep on some surface in the back. Zoe, for sixth, our you know our white trash swamp dog um, uh, of the of the slash dingo fame, um, she considered it her utmost duty, responsibility, and right to spend the entire trip wedged between the two front passenger seats. Um, It was her place. We had, you know, it's sort of like um, in Smoking the Bandit where you need Burt Reynolds to drive and then you need the other guy to prime the um, nitrous oxide tank. It's a two-person job to make the big jump. Not in Smoking the Bandit. I'm sorry. Hooper.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) And uh, I got my um, Burt Reynolds 70s movies mixed up. And, um... Uh, it was a two-person job. You needed somebody in the front passenger seat to keep Zoe from putting her head underneath the brake pedal, which is dangerous. <laughs> yeah, that,
1: it's that final destination scene I mentioned
0: and uh, a few podcasts ago. And um, um, and the thing is, Zoe really showed us something. Everywhere, so we only really camped. We only slept in the RV two nights. Uh huh. Um, we did take turns taking naps during the day to do this drive, but. Zoe would sit up awake, staring out the front windshield from the front passenger seat all night long, <laughs> to keep a you know a weather eye for any possible dangers or intruders. And I mean, I would wake up at like three in the morning and look up, and there's Zoe, sort of her head bobbing as she's trying to stay awake um, to make sure that no one, I mean, no one. Entered the perimeter, um, and it was really kind of impressive.
1: So this is while the car is not moving. Yes, yeah, so this is while okay. like we're
0: asleep in the back. Okay. And but during the day she would stay wedged between the two front passenger seats, and every now and then she would just sort of change positions and try to get like her paws in the wheel well where the driver is, which just is not is not acceptable. <laughs> um, now that she loved. Both of them. I mean, they just had a great time. They loved Lake Michigan. We went to Indiana Dunes. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, they love... I also love Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan's great. Um, it is aptly named. Better. It's a better Great Lake than Lake Erie, for sure. Um, but not quite as... It's inferior to superior, perhaps.
0: Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, and... Uh, um, we were worried about like rattlesnakes and stuff in parts of the, the wider West and also bears, like in Bozeman. We went on a great hike in Bear Canyon. And, um, <laughs> you know, my wife, as listeners know, is from Alaska. And she is, first of all, she has a healthy respect for bears and the dangers they pose. But um, she's terrified of what is a fairly common occurrence. What happens is dogs chase bears, right? And then the bear all of a sudden
1: realizes, wait a second. I
0: am a bear. I can kill dogs.
1: <laughs> yeah, and... this is like there's a scene in, in Memento where uh, Guy Pearce's character is running and he's not sure whether he's chasing someone or being chased. And then a gun starts being fired at him and then he realizes, oh, I'm, I'm being chased That's by right. someone.
0: So the bear all of a sudden will turn around and start chasing the dogs. And the dogs will turn around and run back to their human, then run right past their human, and then the bear will say, ah, human, I will eat your face. (laughs) And my wife has a very healthy fear of this happening because she could totally see Zoe chasing a bear until the bear turned around and then the bear chasing Zoe back and 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 Zoe leading the bear straight to us or straight to her. But
1: uh well you just need either Jeremiah Johnson or Leonardo DiCaprio's character from The Revenant on hand to fight the bear. Rob that
0: might that might do it. We did um we in Bend we did an escape room. Have you ever done one of these things? No, I've heard of them though.
1: Um
0: it was I assume you got out. We got out. We <laughs> uh we didn't do great, but we had fun. Um we almost had it finished. Um when we got the 3 minute warning and then when i say almost had it finished we did 95% of the problem solving but the last 5% was hard and i don't think we would have gotten it if we had another 20 minutes
1: uh-huh
0: um but uh and it was super creepy and um you know is it for the people who don't know basically you go into a room there's a series of puzzles and mysteries you have to solve to figure out how to get out of the room as it were or solve the mystery of the room and we were supposed to uh rescue a little girl who was kidnapped and uh it was kind of cool i'd do it again you know um with the right group of people maybe if there was more al- alcohol involved <laughs> and now that i under- and i say more i didn't say none uh and uh, <laughs> but uh um but it was kind of cool so do we have any other substantive things? Because I feel like we're just sort of stringing people along. Oh,
1: uh, well, there's something I want to mention. So okay. one of the other things I did on my vacation, again, I mean, like, I'm I'm really not that important, but I'll mention this anyway. I've, I finished, I, I know I mentioned on this podcast, the previous episode, that I was reading The Silmarillion again. Mm-hmm. I finished it. It was great. Um, Akbeloth was the best part, which, just, which uh, details the fall of Numenor. But... I bring it up because not just to, like, show off or something, but also I, I want... a
0: very select part of our audience that thinks you're showing off. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, what I want to nominate the Silmarillion as, as one of the, at least the official, well, in the Tolkien universe, it, none of what he wrote is fiction. But in common understanding, fiction, I want to nominate the Silmarillion as the official f- work of fiction of The Remnant. Because I can't tell you how many times in the course of the narrative of the Silmarillion... Uh, there's an incredible devastation by the forces of evil that only a small remnant and that word is almost always used in the text hmm. survives and just lives on to carry on the faith and that that's basically the summary of of what happens in Akbeloth with the fall of Numenor Aragorn and the Lord of the Rings is a, is a descendant of the remnant that comes out of Numenor that survives ah, the that's... the the destruction of it um so that's I, that's what I think
0: I prefer this conversation of the remnant than uh I don't know if you saw, but your governor, um, John Kasich, uh, oh, yeah. recently referred to the remnant of the GOP. The yeah. still believes in all these things. And I was like, and I, was, I know we've talked about this before, but I really don't want, you know, I want some other standard
1: bearer than John Kasich <laughs> uh, for all of this. Um, hey, the one thing you can say about John Kasich, when he went to New York for the primary, he ate so much food. That you have to put in his favor. He was just eating like there are you can look up there are multiple uh like event campaign events where all he does is eat and he just does not stop. It's amazing.
0: Well it's, it's funny. I, I will not name names other than one. Uh but I, I have friends who you know, I didn't do like day to day reporting on the primaries and stuff in twenty sixteen. I don't do that kind of stuff. Um, but uh I have lots of friends who did and uh, Chris Christie would sort of set up at a diner in New Hampshire <laughs> and invite reporters to do sort of breakfasts and breakfast interviews, right? And yeah. so a friend of mine gets there a little early and figured, oh, I'll get some color from the diner or whatever. You know, he's like scheduled to be there at 8 or something like that. Yeah. And gets there at like eight, at 7.30 or something. And he sees that I don't know who the other reporter was, but, you know, it's some other like reporter we know. Talking to Christian, they're they're having breakfast, and my friend is like, "Wait a second! I thought we were having a breakfast meeting. Oh, I guess he'll, he's just eating early, and I'll get something to eat. You know, when I sit down with him, and maybe he'll just have coffee. And then that interview ends, and it's time for his interview, my friend's interview." And Chrissy just orders another breakfast, <laughs> 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 and apparently this was a common thing where he would just order. So very much like a Hobbit, right? First breakfast, yeah. second breakfast, you know.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm on to the. Speaking of Hobbits, I'm on to the Hobbit now, and one of the one of Bilbo's main discomforts in the book is how he's like, oh, I can't believe we're not having second breakfast. I'm so right. hungry." Which is in the movies as well.
0: Um, but. All right, so that's about all I got. Um, I just figured we should do uh, something a little lighter after we asked all these people to eat their spinach in the the Hayek-Palooza episode. Yeah. Um, uh, I have a piece coming out in the next issue of Commentary that's, you know, people keep asking what is going to happen to all of the suicide of the West apocrypha. Well, this is a big piece of that. Um, And um, what else is going on? Um, Oh, I was on... Serendipitously I was on Matt Lewis's podcast yesterday mm. um or I should say recently because I don't know when this is going to fill people's ears um but uh it was all he blamed me for uh what's his name um I used to say that if he took Viagra he'd get taller um
1: Robert Reich?
0: No. No, I my line about Robert Reich was I have to stay on my toes, like Robert Reich at a urinal.
1: Hey, you stole that from the Naked Gun. I might have.
0: Uh, I don't know. It's an, like old, he, that, it's an old, it's an old midget joke.
1: Yeah, that's what the uh, uh, Frank Drebin says at one point, like a midget at a urinal. I was gonna have to stay on my toes. Is it
0: okay? <laughs> um, uh, I, th- I said about Geraldo that when he took fat from his own butt and had it injected in his forehead it took Um, but anyway we can do memory lane of old insults another time uh alan dershowitz oh uh alan dershowitz was supposed to be on matt lewis's show and before he canceled uh lewis was previewing some of dershowitz's arguments and basically saying as lewis puts it that um Dershowitz has been giving Trump a permission structure. He's not necessarily arguing that Trump should, but he's saying it's within the realm of acceptable responses that if Trump concludes that if he is impeached and the Senate votes to remove him from office, that he can just refuse to go along with that. If he concludes in his deep understanding of the Constitution that such an impeachment is illegitimate. And I think that is... Uh, we try to keep the lyrics on this clean bat guano crazy. (laughs) Um, and so then Dershowitz, and I said so on Twitter and then Dershowitz canceled. And so Lewis was like, okay, you owe me, come on, on. And we, we talked for a while about this stuff and some other, um, um, things having, there was more rank punditry by me on that than there has been on this. I'll put it that
1: way. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, and, uh. Something I started doing on the road, and I have to thank Sonny Bunch for this. What? Yeah, what are I know. you
1: thanking Sonny Bunch. For? Well, you
0: know, he brought up how he's been rewatching Deadwood.
1: Oh, because and, of the movie.
0: And yeah, because of the movie. But I, he put it in my head. I was like, you know, I haven't watched that in a long time. So I've been rewatching Deadwood too. It really is as good as I remember it. I mean, it's really great, great stuff. Um, um, and I'm picking up things that I had forgotten in there.
1: Um, also, your. Um replenishing your store of, of of archaic insults. That's right. <laughs> um some of which, well, most of which, perhaps all of which we cannot use on this on this podcast. Many a great many of which, yeah. Um
0: and um um and I also started watching by almost by accident this show on Amazon called Fortitude. Have you seen this? I I are- I haven't decided if I'm going to continue with it. It's strange. Um, Don't have the
1: fortitude for fortitude.
0: I may not have the fortitude for
1: fortitude. <laughs>
0: uh, do you have any other pop culture picks? Or, um, or suggestions other than the Silmarillion, which no one's going to read,
1: and The Hobbit. Uh, no, I've been uh, been uh, I haven't done much pop culture lately. But I will. I'll in exchange, I'll give some pop culture trivia. The relationship between this episode and the one we just recorded is similar to that between the songs. Lovely Rita by The Beatles, and I think it's um, Take Up Thy Stethoscope and Walk by Pink Floyd on Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which were recorded at the same time in the Abbey Road Studios. So, like, they inadvertently, like... They, Cross-pollinated? Well, sort of. They kind of have similar sound effects because they were, like... The engineers for both are going back and forth, and, like, they were both kind of sound collages. And so it's just fascinating if you can if you listen to them both. And I think I'm right... I think I'm right about the Pink Floyd song, but if not, if I'm wrong, the some someone will correct me. Um, well,
0: if we're trading uh, weird trivia, uh, listeners may you can find a link um, uh, in the show notes. I did a, and I I really thought there was going to be more of a reaction. I'm a little bummed. I think it's partly because if you don't have a digital subscription and you use up your free visits, it's hard to get. But I did a, my big piece on the movie They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper and. Um, and its connection to Frankfurt School Marxism, and um, I thought it was going to get more of a reaction. Actually, to be honest, I wanted it to be the cover because I thought you could really do a great cover from a, a movie graphic. Um, yeah, for it, but they went with the gun issue instead. Read this article, buy this magazine. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, but it, it, one of the things I learned while researching that that piece was that the short story what's it called that, that they uh, live is based on
1: something like something involving a time
0: yeah something some, some something a clock yeah uh
1: noon something like that and
0: uh the author of that the science <laughs> fiction author of that who first wrote the short story that they live is based on his real claim to fame was he was the inventor of the propeller beanie <laughs> Which I just think is kind of awesome and, and, and is probably less of a cultural icon today than it was, you know, 40 years ago. But it really – I think it's still – there are very few visuals that scream dork that are more iconically associated with dorky or nerdiness than the propeller beanie.
1: Uh, I agree with that.
0: Um, and uh, – with that and vital piece of information.
1: <laughs> two vital pieces.
0: Uh, two vital pieces. Send your obscure weird trivia uh, to at Jonah Remnant on Twitter or to the Pod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, suggestions for future shows. Again, you know, we want to make this weirder. Uh, maybe we'll do an all weird trivia episode um, where we just sort of have to, like, Instead of having poker chips, we just trade <laughs> one upsmanship on weird trivia. I think people. Oh would man, like that.
1: that would get, whew, that would get weird.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and um, uh, someone suggested on Twitter recently. See, I read all these things. Uh, that they liked the the publishing episode with Jay Mandel, the one mm-hmm. my agent. Um, and they thought that it would be good to have an episode dedicated simply to column writing or punditry. Ah. And that is probably for me the single easiest episode to cast. Um given that you know, like uh, you know a third of my professional friends are in that line of work. Um uh so maybe we'll do that. I think that might be interesting. And um but I also want to just I really do want to do more weird episodes. I want more sound effects. I want more um I want to trigger more people to become uh serial killers or um you know, you know like eight more days to halloween halloween that kind of stuff
1: um, you 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 want more sero- serial killers well I, I mean figuratively not literally um so oh, so you mean it the way that uh oh wait no i can't i you you have this joe biden line so effortlessly memorized i was trying to imitate it but i can't i'm not you
0: right i meant when i say literally i don't mean figuratively the way joe biden means literally yeah that's it
1: yeah um i shouldn't try to steal your material anyway
0: um but, you know, so quirky, weird stuff, um, looking for that kind of thing. Um, and uh, other than that, thanks for tuning in. We'll figure out something for next week. I don't know what it will be. I'm going to be on the road a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so there may be more Skyping from a great distance. Um, review us on
1: iTunes. Review us on iTunes. or Google Play, subscribe in those places, etc. cetera.
0: Um, do not let the, uh, the Axis... <laughs> of i'll tell you what commentary podcast weekly substandard um overtake us in
1: any of these regards is that some like nazi virtue signaling or desiring not your antagonists to be nazis there um you used the word axis uh, empire okay <laughs> <laughs> well that's they they'll they'll not mind that
0: yeah at least some of them won't and um oh and we did a special remnant uh crossover episode with rob long um if you haven't heard it It was kind of fun. And um,
1: see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.